0: This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Last week, Bengals fans mustered and clustered together you pleaded and you prayed, life happens. But we knew who you were, and we knew where you were. As you donned your jerseys and waved your banners and sang your songs and cried and pleaded and, and, and did what good fans do, we knew who you were. It was clear to whom you were allegiant. We knew who you were following. During the game, my son, who was not a Bengals fan, but a Bills fan, put on his garb and wore his jerseys and his hats and waved his banners because he was not a Bengals fan, nor did he want anyone to know that he was a Bengals fan. He was a Bills fan. He was appropriate, but it was clear that he was not a part of that team. In fact, we would have been very concerned or questioned if Lucas did have Bengals' stuff on because he's part of the Bills team. And for him to change allegiances like that would be kind of weird because he's a follower of the Bills tribe. What is it that makes a follower of Jesus, though, a follower of Jesus? What is it that marks someone as a part of that tribe? Is it how they dress? Is it um, what they do, what they don't do? What is it that defines them? Not from a worldly perspective, a cultural perspective, from a biblical perspective. What marks someone as a follower of Jesus? In the earliest years of the church, that was a big question. An emperor by the name of Diocletian rose up. He did not like Christians. And he was surrounded by a bunch of counselors that despised and hated the Jesus movement. And they worked out legislation and edicts to make life very difficult for followers of Jesus where they could shop, what they could do, what they couldn't do, what their freedoms were, what their rights were. In the last part of the 200s into the 300s A.D., what historians call the Great Persecution broke out, where you see some of the most violent, hostile acts against Christianity, not across the whole empire, but in very, very specific locations, especially the closer to Rome that you got. And part of those edicts were that everyone was required To go to a Roman temple to make sacrifice on behalf of the emperor to the Roman gods. Everyone was. Everyone had to show their support by making pagan sacrifices. What do you do if you're a follower of Jesus? You've given your allegiance to somebody else. You've publicly displayed that you believe in God the Father Almighty. You believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, your Lord. You believe in the Holy Spirit. You believe these things. You you have declared that you follow Jesus. You don't follow Rome. You don't follow the emperor, worship the emperor. You don't follow their gods. What do you do? Do you go in and just kind of go through the motions? Is that okay? Because you have to eat. You don't want to get killed. Many, 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 many followers of Jesus stood their ground. Some did not. And they made sacrifices. Pastors did. Bishops did. Followers of Jesus went to pagan temples and because of cultural pressures made sacrifice to false gods and so the question arose in the church what do we do with these people they said that they were followers of jesus but now they've kind of gone against that and they've done other things can you come back once you've made that type of decision what is it that marks a follower of jesus And maybe to you you're like, what's the big deal? Cuz Jesus forgives, right? And if you kind of rush to that answer very flippantly, very easily, maybe you don't appreciate the depth of forgiveness, the weight of sin, and the cost of grace. Can a pastor who went to a Roman temple to make sacrifice, mocking his baptism, can he lead a church again? Can he preach again? It became a very serious discussion in the context of the local church. And so it seemed very important after decades of discussion that it was clear to articulate in the beliefs of the church that within the church of Jesus Christ, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. we have been in a series now for almost two months and we have this week and next week left where we've been looking at those core tenets that our faith rests on i believe in god the father almighty maker of heaven and earth and in jesus christ god's only son our lord who's conceived by the holy spirit born of the virgin mary and suffered under pontius pilate was crucified died and was buried He descended to the dead, but on the third day he rose again. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and will return to judge the living and the dead. Oh, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and today, let's write it down together. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins, of sins and what does that mean to help us? I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you're new to House on the Rock, or you're visiting or watching online, uh, we're a church that holds very highly the authority of Scripture. We are a gathering that encourages people to bring their Bibles, read their Bibles, study their Bibles. They're located in the seats in front of you. We'll have them up here behind us. It lets us know what God asks and teaches and believes in us. We don't worship the Bible. We do worship the God the Bible teaches us about. So please, make Scripture a priority in your life. It's one here. Mark chapter 2. I want to read an account for you, and I think it's going to help us Be grounded in and understand what it means should we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Mark chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Then we will go back through it and make some observations together with you. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, that's a city in the region he's in, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" I think this is really help us understand what it means to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. So let me go back with you to the beginning of this story. and we'll, we'll walk through it together. And we'll just make some observations. And maybe there's things that you want to write down in the spaces in your notes. But let me go back to the beginning of the story. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no room not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. What does that mean? What was he preaching to them? What was he saying? What was he doing? Well, let's understand it in context. Mark is a very concise, surgical account. Mark's one of the first books of the New Testament that was written. Uh, Mark is the gospel that the other gospel writers reference and use as source material. Mark walked alongside the Apostle Paul in his ministry. Mark looked a lot to Peter to share many of the stories with him that he recorded and put together. But to say that Jesus was preaching the word means you have to go back to the beginning of Mark and kind of work your way through that first chapter to understand that in context. Because from the beginning of Mark's gospel, he says, the beginning of the gospel. So what's the gospel? It's a churchy word. It's the heralding of good news, specifically meaning that a new king has come. We say at House on the Rock, it's better news. Because Jesus has come, that's better news. Whatever you heard out this week, it's better that Jesus has come. And then he backs that up with a couple Old Testament references. He cites prophets like Isaiah and Malachi who reference the fact that God is going to restore and put all things back together again through a very specific person. And that John is going to come, the baptizer, and herald this new king, preparing the way for the Lord. And so, very tightly through one chapter, we see Jesus arrive. John says, this is the promised one who's going to make everything right. This is the one through whom God is going to restore and rescue and repair all of his creation. Jesus goes out into the wilderness, a passage we're going to look at a lot, during the Easter and Lent season, he battles against evil, comes back victorious. Then we see Jesus beginning his ministry, proclaiming the gospel, meaning what? Jesus says so himself. This is the message of the gospel. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe this message, believe the better news. God's drawing near. You need to leave your allegiances to the world and come and follow me. I'm the king this is my creation, this is my cosmos, and I'm going to set it right. Story after story is now Jesus showing and telling that truth. He preaches that message, then he'll heal someone. He'll put someone back together again. He'll drive out evil spirits. He'll heal a leper. All of it to show and to tell the message that he has come and he's putting the world right again. So when we get to chapter 2 and Jesus is preaching the word, what's he preaching? I'm here. I'm the king. I'm restoring, repairing, and rescuing creation. I'm battling against evil. I'm making things right again. That's the message. God is rescuing. i am come back. So to go on, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Verse 4. And when they could not get near Jesus because the crowd, I mean the place is packed, they removed the roof above him. They made an opening. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith. All right, so let's understand that. That's an important word in this discussion. What does it mean to say faith? They have faith. Again, churchy word. Gospel, churchy word. Faith, churchy word. Really easy to get those words confused. Here's some ways of understanding faith. Faith means to align myself with Jesus' message. If Jesus has said something, I'm going to live according to that message. To live according to that message means I have faith. I have faith. To say that I have faith means to be allegiant to Jesus and not someone else. To be allegiant to we're in the midst of the Olympics, and you can see as Olympic athletes come up to the line, to the block, whatever it is they're competing in, where their allegiance is. What banner do they gather under? I was confused because during the, female, the women's snowboarding, uh, the woman who took gold, she's an American. But she had a Japanese banner because her mom's Japanese and she wanted to go underneath Japan. Now, if she wasn't a good athlete, I wouldn't care so much. But she got the gold. I'm like, but she born in America. I pledge allegiance to that flag. Ah, but my mom's Japanese and she wanted to help move uh, snowboarding uh, that, that sport forward in Japan and in a country she's traveled back and forth to a lot, she said. So she competed underneath that banner. She was allegiant to that banner. To say that I have faith means I'm going to act like Jesus tells the truth. I'm going to act like Jesus tells the truth. And so for these individuals who are bringing their friend, they had heard the message and seen the message. This Jesus guy is making things right. And so it... We have a friend who's broken, who's paralytic, who can't get up and move. We're going to bring him to Jesus. Jesus gave us this message. We're bringing this person to Jesus. So Jesus says, I see your faith. I see your faith. You are acting like I tell the truth. They're bringing a paralytic. I think that's real important because Jesus needs to show and tell the message of the gospel. And Jesus needs to teach something that's invisible and so he's gonna do something that's visible. Imagine someone who's paralytic. They can't use their legs, move their legs. Their legs are numb. They can't get around. In some respects, they're like a living, dead person. They can't do the things the way a human body's designed to do them. And this is the image that Jesus is going to use to teach a very important lesson. For us, he says to the man, son, verse 5, your sins are forgiven. This week that word son still alone has really grabbed my attention. I've read this story lots and lots of times. But Jesus says to him, son, is to say we're in this together. We're, I'm with you. There's a sense of affection and love and concern there. Son. But what does it mean to say your sins are forgiven? We should probably get those two words. What is sin and what is forgiveness? Again, those are really churchy words. Really churchy words. Maybe you grew up in a culture where sin meant something specific. Forgiveness meant something very specific. In the New Testament, sin means to miss. You missed the mark. This was the standard. You didn't hit it. In the Old Testament, it's a whole lot more nuanced. There's a whole lot bigger understanding of what sin is from different facets. It can mean this. Here's the expectation, and you didn't come up to it. You were supposed to walk this path. You didn't walk that path. But it can also mean this. Not that you didn't walk the path. You decided to take another path. You said, all right, God said this, but we're going to go this way. We're going to do this too. A third way is an outright rebellion against God's expectation. You know what God said or you know what the standard was and you deliberately rebelled against that, acted against that, defied that. Three different terms in the Old Testament to talk about this thing that we call sin. All three of them come together. Let me use this illustration as an example. This last week, doping scandal swept through the Olympics again. There was a 15-year-old ice skater. Okay, she can do a quad. It's off the hook, amazing what this ice skater is able to do. This 15-year-old from Russia. She was found to have performance-enhancing drugs in her system. Okay? Historically, it's very simple. You're out. You're out. Olympiads, respect, and practice pure sport. IOC comes along and says, hey, we'll let her compete. And we'll just kind of have to maneuver, you know, should she get up to the platform, then we'll have to deal with it. But we'll we'll, we'll let her compete, and then we'll go from there. We understand that maybe it's a complicated situation. People are going nuts. Like, Olympic athletes don't use performance-enhancing drugs. Olympic athletes don't use drugs. Maybe you remember the Summer Olympics. We, one of our top track and field athletes, was disqualified because she used marijuana, which is not a performance-enhancing drug, and they kicked her off. And she even said, so. hey, I knew this was wrong when I did it. I respect the decision. I'm disqualified. The problem is now the committee is like, yeah, I know it's a performance-enhancing drug, but we'll let her compete. So from understanding a sin perspective, we have a 15-year-old who did not meet the standard, okay? We have a committee now that said, yeah, we're gonna recognize another path, another path. But I think there's a third component. We were listening to some of the commentators who are um, Olympiads in their own right, historically, uh, skated for the United States, medal-winning athletes, and talked about their emotional brokenness and woundedness over how this is being handled. And one of them said this, despite that she's 15 years old, somewhere is an adult who failed her. She will carry the full weight of this judgment. It's on her, this 15-year-old. But then they said, but somewhere there's an adult who failed this kid. Meaning, someone who deliberately rebelled against the system. Because well, we don't know what the circumstances were, right? She's a 15-year-old kid. Competing at a global level. Who knows? For all she knows, here, some coach, said, here's your vitamins, take your vitamins. So she's taking her vitamins, not knowing that she's taking TMZ. Maybe that's the situation. Maybe she knew exactly what she was doing. Doesn't matter. There's an adult somewhere who intentionally defied the standard. I think in that, you see the many ways that Scripture addresses sin. It's not being human the way God intended us to be human. It's not being an Olympiad the way you're supposed to be an Olympiad. It's pursuing another path when God said, this is the path. It can also be deliberately acting against what God has said is good and right. This tells us God takes sin seriously. I mean, did the guy go there to get forgiven? Why did he show up? Why say, hey, hey, uh, take me to Jesus so I can get my sins forgiven. No, that's, that, that's not what was on the table. It's, I'm going there to get healed. I'm going there to get put back together. What's the first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth? As if Jesus says, this healing is more important than that healing. Because God takes sin seriously. And it's something that must be forgiven. It's something that must be dealt with. It's must something that needs to be talked about. Your sins are in all the scope, the act, the effect. I mean, just, just go back to the, the, that Russian story again. I was, I was reading an article where uh, the woman who just um, took the gold for the short program in women's ice skating, her, uh, she's a Russian athlete, She's at the pinnacle of her game. This is the highest, most exciting moment of her life. This is what she's worked for. I think maybe she's 17, 18. She gets the gold. Practices pure sport. And she says, taking the podium, there's an emptiness because of what's going on surrounding her teammate. Because that's what sin does. Sin isn't an isolated thing. there's There's a corporate aspect to it where what one person does has circumstances that affect others around them. And so to talk about sin is to talk about all of that. So Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. Meaning, I'm moving the responsibility to fix this from you to myself, I will pay the cost. I will cover this. This is beyond you. If you could have healed yourself, you would have healed yourself. But you can't. I was driving my grandfather's car once. I was 19 years old, 20 years old. It was January 1st. And in Western Pennsylvania, winter's kind of a thing, like it's real. And it stays for a while. And lingers for a while. And it snowed a lot, and the roads were icy, and I'm driving fast, and I come around a hard curve, and the car starts to fishtail and goes right into a telephone pole. I'm driving my grandfather's car. Can you imagine the phone call? But he forgave me, meaning he paid to have it fixed. He paid to repair it. The type of person my grandfather was. God forgives. Historically at this time, you had to go to the temple to be forgiven. You had to bring sacrifice, a substitute that God had prescribed and said this is what's appropriate. If you've done this, you need to do this to make this right. Jesus says, I am now, remember we talked about this last week, I am now holy space. I am temple. You can come to me and we'll deal with this. You come to me, we'll take care of this. Your sins are forgiven now. And as a result, the Pharisees go nuts. The scribes start flipping out. Only God can forgive sins. Ah, yes, that's exactly right. Only God can forgive sins. Then Jesus goes on to say that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And Jesus claims a very important phrase. And if you have a Bible that you go to consistently, I would turn to Daniel chapter 7, highlight it, circle it, dog ear it. You need to read it and know it because Jesus references this constantly. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite term to refer to himself. It's his go-to phrase. Some people call him Jesus the Christ. Some people call him Messiah. Some call him the Son of God. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Because in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days, God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, is pictured in a vision by Daniel. Then he sees one like the Son of Man, meaning a human, who's standing next to God the Father. And to this one, God the Father gives authority and dominion over all things. Meaning... All of creation, all of cosmos, and all the brokenness that's here. Jesus says, I take responsibility for this hot mess. I'm going to restore creation. I'm going to put the cosmos back to the way that God had intended it to be, which means I take responsibility for sin and its effects. I am capable to forgive sins. He's making a key claim. That's why when we say and pray Creed, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. This is His department. He is the one with the authority to forgive. But the Pharisees do something great for us because they give Jesus the opportunity to localize and diagnose the sin issue. When they questioned in their heart, because sin is not an external problem, but it will manifest itself externally. Sin is not just your actions. Like if you stop doing that thing, then the sins are taken care of. Sin is an internal thing. It's an internal problem. It's an internal corruption and destruction. It overflows from the core corruption of who and what you are. To say your heart is to say you in your entirety. It's that space where you and God meet in your inner being. It's that space in you that you speak from and act from, where you love from. And Jesus says, that's the part that's broken. That's the part that's twisted and turned. You, at your core being, are sinful. you can't see that. I can see a paralytic man. I can see legs that don't move and can't feel and can't act and and can't live up to what it means to be human. I see legs that can't. But Jesus says, all right, in the same way that you see that paralyzed body, now you can understand your paralyzed, wounded, broken heart. In the same way that your heart and that body cannot move, your heart is numb and dead and unfeeling and unacting and evil in what it does and brings pain in what it does. So Jesus shows and tells. He says, verse 9, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. That's easy. Hey, your sins are forgiven. Well, I don't see anything. Yet watch this. That you may know the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So that they were amazed and glorified. God saying, we never saw anything like this. So, what does it mean to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins? Because you can say something and it doesn't mean anything. I think to take seriously the confession that I believe in the forgiveness of sins means number one, this I recognize my own sinful heart. I recognize my own sinful heart. I'm part of the problem. Given any relationship, I'm part of the problem. Given any interaction in God's creation, I bring problem. Because I bring a broken, sinful, wounded, corrupt heart. And daily need to address that between my Father and I. Our Father in heaven. Be glorified in my life. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Forgive me my debts. Forgive me those places where I have incurred crisis and problem in your creation, where I've hurt and maimed and harmed. I'm a part of it. And keeping a sensitivity to this. I taught my sons just an anchoring prayer of confession, the right words. There have been times where we've taught this and prayed this together. Most merciful God, I confess I've sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by what I've done and what I've left undone. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I am truly sorry. I humbly repent. Now, it's easy just to keep going from there because if you keep sin pretty vague, it doesn't hurt so much. But if we start to get specific, oh, that's where the scalpel of grace can start to cut. And maybe you remember, I did a series on the capital vices. So I've been trying to maybe anchor myself and running through those again. But I confess the sin of gluttony where I have used food to medicate, where I've used food and drink inappropriately. I've used food to make myself feel better. I've eaten in inappropriate ways and I've brought damage to your creation. I recognize that as sin. To go through the list of vices. Lust. God, I, I recognize how I have a, a, a habit of seeing sex as medicine and, 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 and using sex to make me feel better and objectifying women. Or maybe it's wrath or greed and chasing after the almighty American dollar. Maybe it's vain glory. That one's pretty common. I call it the selfie vice. I want you to see me. I just don't want you to know how messed up I am on the inside. As we battle shame. Sloth. Not doing the things I should or doing the things I shouldn't. That's sloth. But taking sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. God doesn't dismiss sin and sweep it under the rug. God doesn't put a love band-aid over it and, and not deal with it. Oh, he deals with it. He takes it very, very seriously. I recognize my own sinfulness. I'm part of the problem. But to say I believe in sin also means that I feel responsible to help bring others to the healing grace of Jesus. Like, like the paralytic had four people bring him to Jesus. Who in, in my life can I pray before and bring before Christ? Here's the cool thing. I don't need your permission to do it. Can I bring you before Christ? I can just pray. I can just pray. Adam. Awesome, love him to pieces. Let's say Adam's a hot mess. One of our elders, he nods his head. Good elder. And maybe Adam was out and he got hammered last night. He just painted all of Miami County with his own Dora cup. And I, in fact, the cops had to call me up. I'm like, dude, we have one of your elders downtown. We can't get him off the flagpole. And he won't put any clothes on. I might have taken that illustration too far. <laughs> because I recognize how serious sin is and what sin does to a human being, what its sin does to those that he's in relationship with, what sin does to the church, I'm going to, I'm going to bring out before Christ. Not by the ear, <laughs> but even I start out with personal prayer. God, would you please work in a powerful way in Adam's life? Holy Spirit that hovers over the chaos of our own humanity, would you you work in Adam's life? And then maybe through conversation, hey, can we talk about last night and the flagpole? If I believe in the forgiveness of sins, that means I'm going to resist being pharisaical. I mean, I'm going to resist claiming authority over forgiveness, deciding who can be forgiven and under what circumstances they can be forgiven. Because that's what the Pharisees were doing. You can't forgive sins. This is how sin is forgiven. And this is how sin is dealt with. And God, Jesus says, I have authority over forgiveness, not you. And in the human heart, that comes out like bitterness and it comes out like unforgiveness. And it can come out like shame. Those are the sins of the Pharisee where I decide, yeah, you don't get forgiven because of what you did. You don't have the authority to do that. And what that turns into is bitterness and it corrupts and rots your own soul. Or shame where you don't believe in the forgiveness of your sins. We're going to move into the spring season preparation for Lent and we're going to actually talk about some of these spiritual forces, demons, if you will, as we go into the wilderness with Jesus. Because we battle sin and we battle unforgiveness and we battle bitterness and we battle shame. Jesus came to heal us of those things. Jesus says, forgiveness is my department. You're not allowed to decide who is and is not forgiven. If I believe in the forgiveness of sins, that means I recognize that there's a vertical and a horizontal aspect here. Forgive me my debts as I've forgiven my debtors. And I recognize both how I walk before God, how I walk with others in my effect on others, the Lord's Prayer. To say that I believe in the forgiveness of sin is to recognize this is the human condition. If you look at Creed, where it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, hope. As far as the creed is concerned and this is great from a teaching perspective when it comes to your life on a daily basis it's pretty much dealing with sin in all of its colors and shapes and sizes in every relationship that you're in guess what you're bumping into the effect and habit of sin my own heart and the hearts of others but i believe in that This is the defining characteristic of someone that's a follower of Jesus. They recognize that Jesus is working in and through the world to forgive and bring grace. I am defined by walking in forgiveness and helping others get back on their feet. Those paralyzed by sin. To say that I believe in forgiveness is to embrace that the church is a hot mess. A real hot mess. It's not tidy. It's not neat and clean. We bleed over each other. We bite each other. We spit on each other. We vomit on each other. We damage one another. And because we believe in the forgiveness of sins, we get that's the culture that we're in. It's not a culture of perfectionism and legalism. Where we put on a false front. And if that's the church you're looking for, if you want the church of the false front, it's out there. It's not in here. If you want a church where everyone conforms to your Pharisaical standard, by all means, you have the right to go build that church. It's just not here. This is a church where I and the elders take a hard stand to say, you can be a hot mess here. But clean up your act. And we'll walk with you like Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. This is not license to sin. Shall I sin that grace may abound? Oh, goodness, no. You pull that card, we're going to have issues. Jesus will forgive me tomorrow. I'll beat you up by then. Because I love you. We recognize that the church is a place where we deal with sin. Jesus catches a lot of flack for this if you just keep reading in the gospel story in Mark. This later, verse 13 down through 17, he goes and he hangs out with Levi and all of his friends. He's reclining at a table, verse 15. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. There's a a feast, it's a gathering they're having. Pharisees and scribes, they saw this that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. It's a little bit of a backhanded slap. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And finally, if I believe in the forgiveness of sins, that means that I hold on to hope, which is what we're going to talk about next week. I hold on to hope. Hope meaning Jesus is coming back. What started at the cross finds its culmination in his return, in his ultimate conquering over and removal of death and sin. This is going towards a better ending. That's why we call it better news. So as hard as it is for us to walk alongside of each other sometimes, we hold on to the hope that Jesus is coming back because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. I say i believe in the holy spirit which means i recognize a god that broods and hovers over my chaos and the chaos of humanity so i want to dare you to do something i dare you to give the holy spirit permission to touch your heart and i dare you to do it i double dog do it just to spite me show that pastor paul he don't know what he's talking about fool Go home in the quietness of your room. Say, Holy Spirit, bring to my heart whatever it was Paul was talking about because I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Give the Holy Spirit room. Hey, do I have any of that sinful chaos in me? Because I think I got my stuff together. And do it the next day. And do it the next day. I'd admonish you as we're getting ready to come before the table and Adam's going to Help us as he hosts the table today. Think through some of the relationships that were at play in this passage. Think of yourself and your relationship with God. Have you recognized your own sinfulness before him? The fact that you're part of the problem? And give him permission to heal and forgive and restore you? What about your relationship with those other people that you can bring before Christ through prayer? Are those that you can go and talk to? Hey, can we have a conversation about this? I see sin ruling in your life, and it's going to sear your conscience. It's going to harden your heart. Sin at play. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Say that with me. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Say it again. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. One more time. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our HOPE team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless.